Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. All right, so we're still in the Footsteps of Messiah series, and we've just come off of a, a few lessons on principalities and powers in high places, because so often, well, I would say almost 100% of the time, if I've ever heard anyone teach on those, it's been from a, a certain tradition, but not necessarily established by scripture. They're just kind of cobbling things together because... You know, it's it's a world it's a world we can't see. It's a realm we can't see. But I think we gave a little better structure to that. And so now that we understand how these powers and principalities in high places work, we understand the role of the twelve tribes of Israel relative to those principalities and powers. And even in some cases, you know, the question was if the two Caribbean who were guarding the Garden of Eden weren't needed until Adam and Eve were sent out because they could no longer guard and work. It's only at that point that the two Caribbean are put into place. So if these tribes go back to their inheritance, if they take their proper place, if they begin to do their jobs, if they begin to guard and to serve in the garden, are those two Caribbean needed anymore? And that's the expectation, again, as the principalities and powers are shaken, it's kind of a sign that Israel is starting to come back together. And it's possible that there's going to be some reassigning that's going on. So you have to topple certain things down in order to reinstate other things. And uh, the wilderness has been kind of our dominant uh, setting for the footsteps, because we know that we're out here in the wilderness it's called the wilderness of the peoples. There's a wilderness of Egypt and a wilderness of the peoples. And it's going to be so spectacular when he pulls us out of this wilderness of the peoples that they say the original Passover is not going to be brought to mind before the original Exodus, not the Passover, but the original Exodus. We're like, oh, he took them out of one nation the first time. This time he brought them out of all the nations. That's spectacular. And so, uh, but first he takes you into a wilderness. Now we've reached a point in the Torah readings where now they are poised to go over the Jordan. And this is where Moses realizes he's not going to be able to go in. And I know that was a huge disappointment to him uh, to the point where, you know, as he's requesting, finally, the Holy One says, don't ask me anymore. Just like you would tell your kids, quit asking. You're going to get the same answer, but it's really hurting me for you to keep asking. So crossing the Jordan is a, is a gateway. It's the gateway into the land. You can be in the land, but you're not in the land properly until you cross the Jordan. If you land in Tel Aviv, <laughs> you're actually not properly in the land. He's eventually going to bring us a different way. No matter how many other ways we got in there, he's eventually going to bring us over that Jordan for a particular reason. And there's all sorts of signs uh, that are left along the way to remind us of that. Uh, so as we come up out of the wilderness, we're going to cross over the Jordan, and then we're going to once again be reassigned to our inheritance. The original plan was not changed. He just changed us. 
you know, and you're like Baruch Hashem Yeshua, uh, that he prepared that way for us and he knows how to lead us over that Jordan. So our reading today was Deuteronomy 31. Uh, we took a look at verse one because that's the the verse that the name of the Torah portion centers around. So Moses went and he spoke all these words to Israel. Why did he do it again? I mean, it's like he's constantly talking to them. Well, there's an emphasis here I want to look at about went. And you say, you know, only in Torah study could you ever talk that much about the word go. <laughs> but Hebrew words mean things. And once we start parsing them and pulling them apart and looking them in, in different contexts, we see, oh, wow, there's a, a huge mountain of significance there. It never changes the meaning. It never changes the simple meaning. But it can add so much more significance. It's like taking that coloring book and, and taking the crayons to it so that it's much more vivid. So we read verse one, and then we slid right on down and, and emphasized verses nine through 13, where Moses takes this Torah and he gives it to the priests. He gives it to the sons of Levi. Uh, he calls up the elders. So basically, the whole nation is standing there. And he says, I want you to read this each Shemitah, uh, each year of release, at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, at the time of Sukkot. It's going to be important, especially to hear these words then, because I'm preparing you at this point uh, to hear and to learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live on the land which you're about to cross the Jordan to possess. So let's back up a couple verses from where we're going to start. Song of Songs 3.6, here's the question. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchant? So we've had lesson after lesson after lesson on that particular verse. And everything we looked at said, yeah, these are the tribes of Israel coming up out of the wilderness, and they're about to cross over the Jordan, but they've been transformed. Something happened to them in the wilderness, something good. Because now everything you see in them has to do with the service of the tabernacle, which is pretty cool. And if we look at the tabernacle, sometimes also being called a sukkah. So the transformation that has taken place within us has all the earmarks of sukkot. Uh, that this transformation, we are now poised, like Moses is saying to the Israelites, we're about to cross over Jordan. But that's the question. Who is this? Right? Here's the answer. And Song of Songs 3, 7, and 8. It says, Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon, King Shlomo, 60 warriors around it of the warriors of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. Now, we looked at the symbolism of the night, how it symbolizes times of exile. Well, these 60 mighty warriors have been guarding this traveling couch, whatever it is. And we already know what it is, don't we? This is the 12 tribes, too. And it belongs to King Shlomo, which means the king to whom peace belongs. So there's our messianic picture right there. Well. The king to whom peace belongs is going to be in the midst of the 12 tribes. 
as they come up from the wilderness. But it points out a perimeter. And these these uh, 60 warriors are around it. Savav, which is the same description of the rivers of Eden, how they surrounded the river. They were like a protection. Yeshua at Sukkot stood up and talked about them being rivers of living water, being the spirit, symbols of the Holy Spirit. So these 60 mighty warriors that encircle not just the divine presence of Adonai, but they're also encircling the 12 tribes of Israel, there is a special spirit upon them to where they are able to guard and to serve what is inside of that circle as it's traveling up to cross over the Jordan. And they're experts with the sword. Now we know what the sword symbolizes. The sword symbolizes the word. So there's there's kind of a couple of stages here. We've got the 12 tribes who are traveling. They've been transformed in the wilderness, but there's a, an, a special portion of spirit up on these 60 mighty warriors. And what we want to figure out, who are they? Is it 60 or does it represent 60 something? We want to find that out. So we can look at wordplay equivalencies. And there's something I want to remind you. Just a, a detail from hermeneutics that would stop a lot of arguments if we paid attention to it. There's a difference between meaning, what does this mean in scripture, and significance. Meaning will never change. His word never changes. It means what it means at the simple level. Significance will change. You will be able to see it from different angles and apply it to different situations and different generations. Would not starting a fire be different to us than maybe somebody 2,000 years ago? Because we got all sorts of fires they never heard of <laughs> called electricity. And so there's questions that will arise about the text. What is the plain meaning of it? And then what is the significance to us? How do we deal with this text in our generation? And so often it's as we're finding the beauty of the word, it's because we're finding additional significance. We're not changing what it meant. It always means what it means. But like I say, the colors for the coloring book, I think, grow out of the significance. But we, you know, where it concerns doctrine, often what we find ourselves arguing is significance when we have no business doing that. What if you just find another significance to a verse? Does that change its meaning? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. And often we get so competitive. If somebody shows you a significance to a verse and it's different from what you see, you think they're arguing with you, that they're trying to displace your idea of, of what the significance is. And that's you, you don't really do that if you do if you work it properly. They're simply showing you another way of looking at that scripture. Now, if they start arguing with you about meaning, about the simple meaning of theirs, now you got an issue, and which you know they're doing that all the time. Uh, so this is what we want to do. We want to look at some of the wordplay. A song of songs is full of wordplay, so you can see additional significance. So one of the words we're going to look at here is going to have a significance um, in a plain sense. It says the traveling couch of King Solomon. Well, the, this traveling couch, it's um, in its plain sense, it's mita. 
in Hebrew, mita. If you're on your bed, on your mita. The, there's just a small anomaly, though, in the way that it's spelled in a Hebrew text, which allows the rabbis to go run in there and say, hey, there must be way more significance to this since this, the spelling of it has changed slightly. It's trying to tell us more than what is just the plain meaning. It wants us to see more significance. And, and so in terms of just a traveling bed, um, you can kind of think of, there's another word for it, but a litter. Remember, if you watch those Egyptian movies where they're carrying Cleopatra around, <laughs> Uh, that's one way of looking at it, uh, probably the most common way of looking at it. But where that uses the Hebrew word mitato, mitato, which means in its plainest sense, his bed, his traveling bed. Well, once you do that, see, once you change the spelling slightly, and then once you take out the vowel points, which weren't even in there originally, those are their late additions, then it adds two more significances to the word. The plain old traveling couch of the king to whom peace belongs, or matot. Well, matot, if you remember, it means rods, but the rods also represent the tribes, the matot of Israel. So matot, his tribes. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? His tribes. That's who's coming up. What else can it mean? Well, it can also mean not just rods, like Aaron's rod that budded or, you know, the rods of the, the leaders of the 12 tribes. Another word that will be used in scripture when it's translated out is arrows, arrows. So his tribes are coming up from the wilderness, his rods. And remember the elders of the tribes, they had a particular, remember I'm putting them to see whose would bud. It's a sign of authority. So these tribes are coming up from the wilderness with authority. But if it also means arrows, hmm. Well, the Torah comes from a Hebrew root, yara, which means to hit the mark. So what transformation do you see in these tribes of Israel coming up from the wilderness to cross over Jordan? They're about to be resurrected is what's about to happen so that they can be replaced in their inheritance. What's significant in the transformation is that now they know how to hit the mark instead of miss it so thoroughly so often. And we've all had times in our lives where we thoroughly missed the mark pretty frequently. In fact, it was just arrows going everywhere, weren't they? Uh, but there's a, a principle there, too. And uh, we're not going to go into it, but it comes from the, the book of Habakkuk, where it talks about the the bow of Judah and the arrows of Ephraim. And often the arrows of Ephraim have had no structure and therefore they go out randomly and often they shoot each other. <laughs> and the thing is without the bow, they're really just throwing the arrows, which is not that effective. Uh, none of it's effective. You need the bow of Judah and you need the arrows of Ephraim. If you want that word to go out accurately, you need a structure. So let's look at the Hebrew text. If you can read it, if you can't, that's fine. Uh, but if you could read it, I did want you to see the, the Hebrew word there, mitato, where we're saying it can be his bed, it can be the tribes, it can be a rod, it can be arrows. And an explanation from the Midrash 
on it. It says, behold, it's the traveling couch of Solomon, 60 warriors around it, all warriors of Israel. This is how they explain it in the Midrash. They say, behold, it is his couch, matot, that is his tribes, like that which is stated in Chavkuk 3.9, the oath of the tribes, the matot of Solomon hints at the king to whom peace belongs. 60 mighty men around, mighty men around it. These 60 men allude to the 60 letters contained in the priestly blessing of the mighty men of Israel. These 60 letters are called thus because they strengthen Israel. So you remember when somebody puts the ironic benediction on you at the end of service, once they say the 60 letters of those words, at the end, they say, thus they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So your strength is in that blessing. And this is also considered to be what you will hear at the resurrection. Why is the Aaronic benediction placed upon the children of Israel every single Shabbat, every single feast? Because it's understood that you're being rehearsed. And at the, the moment of your resurrection, may Adonai bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. All these are steps. And you're going up in the resurrection. So just file that one back. Because if you'll remember the positioning of the hands, like that, sometimes like that, you'll see it different ways. But what the, the fingers are doing, they're forming a sheen, a Hebrew letter sheen. So when somebody does the ironic benediction, often that's, which you're not supposed to be looking, by the way. Because remember, you don't look to the person as the source of blessing. You close your eyes, you look down, you look away, because you have to understand that the blessing is coming from heaven. This person is just the mouthpiece. So don't, don't look. I mean, if you want to check, I guess you could. But <laughs> I'm going to check and see if they're doing that. But if you see something like this or this, it's not Dr. Spock. Uh, and it's not Spock from Star Trek. It's the putting the name, the El Shaddai upon the people of Israel, right? So file that one away because we're going to look at some more significance other than that. Here's another one, again, from the Midrash. Behold, it is his couch, mitato, suggests, behold, it is his tribes, these mighty men round about it. And it says who they are. It says, these are the 24 priesthood watches and the 24 Levitical watches and the 12 monthly, monthly divisions for a total of 60 groups of the mighty men of Israel. The 60 groups are called thus because they safeguard Israel. All right, so as we're looking at these 60, these 60 mighty men, they're saying, okay, this is representative. Sometimes in scripture, they'll give you a representative number, like 144,000. That's 144,000 literal meaning, but then it goes on and it tells you these are the first fruits. So it's just a representative number of the great numbers that are also out there who are sealed. Remember, the first fruits represents the field it came from. So they're saying it, same case here. These 60 men are actually representing 60 groups of people who in turn represent other people. And these are called watches. And uh, 
there's a whole division during the time of the temple. Remember, King David instituted these temple services, and then he handed it off to Solomon. If you've ever wondered why the temple didn't look too much like the tabernacle, well, that's not what was shown to David. David was shown something a little more elaborate than the moving tabernacle. So it says, in his old age, King David made various preparations for the building, administration, and functioning of the temple. With regard to the latter, he divided the Kohanim, the priests, into 24 mishmarot. And you can hear shomer, shamar, in that root, which means a guard. That's what they were supposed to do to the garden. Guard the garden. So there's 24 mishmarot, 24 watches each of which would perform the sacrificial services on a rotating basis for one week. All would serve during the pilgrimage feasts. Right? So it wasn't like, you feel sorry for pastors today, just week in, week out. And you're like, he didn't even make the priests do that. They, they came up a couple times a year and then everybody came during the feast days. Um, and it's now a lot of times pastors are just trying to sustain their ministries day after day, 24 hours a day. And he's like, that really wasn't the plan at the beginning. Um, at any rate, you've got 24 watches of priests and then corresponding 24 watches of Levites. And then um, each of the 12 tribes was supposed to send a certain number each month, and their primary duty was to serve the king in support of the temple service. So they also had their watches or divisions. And so, and I also want you to recall too, because we're still going back to the Garden of Eden, Shomer, if Amishma wrote these watches, guard, this is an equivalent expression to Sovev, which is the night watchman. Remember when the beloved gets off her bed at night, she goes around and she's seeking him because she couldn't find him on her bed. We're like, get off the bed, you'll find him. So she gets off her bed. She runs around the city. She runs into the sovevim, it says. And it says, no sooner did she meet them than all of a sudden she runs into her beloved. So first of all, she had to get off her sit bed. She had to go look for him. And then she had to meet somebody who would know his time. And the Sovavim, remember, it goes back to the circling rivers of Eden. They know the appointed times, especially in the night, because they're night watchmen. So the night represents exile. Anytime Israel is outside of her land, outside of a proper functioning of the entire nation, built around worshiping the Holy One, you're in a night. We're still in a night because not all Israel has been gathered. The temple has not been revealed. All sorts of things have not happened. We're more in a twilight. We're somewhere between the total darkness and the sunrise because now the bow of Judah is going back to the land. Now we've got to pick up some scattered arrows, but <laughs> that tells you the footsteps of Messiah are near. They're coming because you can begin to see those changes that need to take place. So through the night, you need night watchmen. You need people who know the appointed times. Passover, Shavuot, Sukkot. Because you can know those appointed times. He anticipated 
nights of exile. And so on the fourth day of creation, he put the sun, the moon, and the stars in place. It says, for the sake of the Moedim. So you would know the appointed times. You don't have to be ignorant in the night. You can know exactly what time it is. You can be one of the Sovavim. You can be one of those people that when people run into you and they say, what time is it? You're like, almost a cult. You're like, no, what time is it? And you're like, almost a cult. It's actually closer to Yom Kippur. <laughs> if you're a night watchman, those are the times you're expected to know. And the, the key thing about a night watchman is that they depend upon hearing. You can't look in the night and know exactly what time it is. You can't rely on your eyeballs. You rely on your hearing. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So your obedience begins with hearing, not seeing. If you will hear it, then you will see it. That's the way it works. So King David, it says, divided the Levites into 24 watches. They too would serve the same one week in the temple on a rotating basis. And typically they functioned as gatekeepers. They were singers. There were times in history where there were almost uh, female singers as well. If you were a Levitical female, you could participate in the, the praise and worship of the temple. Uh, often they would function like policemen in the temple to keep people out that really didn't belong there. And one of the points that's made about that is it was more of an honor guard. Uh, it's like you can go to certain places. I think we were in England one time. And we were watching those guys with the red coats and the big furry hats and stuff. And it's more of what they were doing was more of an honor guard because there wasn't even a magazine in the rifle. <laughs> I mean, who are you going to stop? <laughs> I mean, where, where, do, where are you going to have to get that to get loaded? And, and so it's more of an honor guard. They don't expect anybody to try to break through into those places. It's, it's to honor the king. And they say it's kind of the same thing with the Levites. They're guards, they're shomrim, but it's there more to honor the king and to honor the king of kings. And that's what it says in uh, Revelation. You don't have to close the gates anymore. Nobody's going to run in there and try to do foolishness. Uh, it says from the earliest days of David's reign, it was instituted that 12 divisions of 24,000 men each were to be at the king's disposal to assist in the execution of his royal duties. So from the 12 tribes, each month were sent 24,000 men from one particular tribe, and the king could assign them to whatever honor guard duty that he wanted them to do, and they would rotate through during the year. Um, so that adds up, if we add up the 24 watches of the Kohanim of the priests, the 24 of the Levites, the 12 divisions of the tribes over the year's time, you have 60 total watches over Jerusalem and the temple. And they say, these are these special people that encircle the 12 tribes of Israel as they're coming up from the wilderness, about to cross over the Jordan, go into the land itself, that these are the most skilled people in the word. So let's go back to Vayelech, which means, and he went. This is from Midrash Tanhuma, and it's going to, I know it's going to be hard to just read one time and, and understand it. So I don't expect you to because I didn't. These are the types of passages I have to take some time and break them down. 
Uh, but I wanted to show you again how this Torah portion is kind of guiding us back to the watches that we can expect possibly to be appointed to. You know, as we're coming up from the nations, the wilderness of the nations, we fully expect to be part of those tribes. Either it doesn't matter whether you're there by blood or whether you have attached yourselves to them. If you've got the faith of Abraham, then you're a child of Abraham. You just attach yourself. And in Ezekiel, it says, whichever tribe you want, you just pick. Uh, you, you still have a portion. And so as they're coming up, then we've got that, that main body of Israel, but then we've got these 60 mighty divisions of those skilled in the word. So we're going to read through it, but like I say, don't be intimidated. It's one of those things you might have to look at it later and think through it. It says, Moshe went and spoke these words to all of Israel. The expression went, which by Yelech, the expression went is nothing but an indication of rebuke, as it is stated in Psalm 46, 9. Go and see the wonders of God. In other words, if you won't believe, go see. At the end of Ecclesiastes, which book do we read at Sukkot? Ecclesiastes. It is written in 1211, the sayings of the wise are like goats. You poke an ox to get it on the path or to get it to, to plow a row. The sayings of the wise are like goads. Just like this goad directs the cow to its furrows, so too do the words of Torah direct the heart of those that learn it to a good path. And it is like nails that are planted. Uh, we, we Usually when we read it, we read like nails that are driven. That's the more common uh, English translation. But I'm going to show you what they did when they selected, planted the words of the wise, they are like nails, mashmerot. Now it says mashmerot, but it's written mashmerot. So we're gonna look at why did they do that? What's the significance of that? Do you hear shomer in that word again for nails? Hmm. It's like nails that are planted. Just like this nail is planted, so too are words of the Torah. And just like a planting, a sapling is fruitful and multiplies, so too do the words of the Torah become fruitful and multiply to find an explanation about them. That's what's the fun of finding the significance. You're just finding new things that you didn't see before. They are given from one shepherd. Even though these are rendering impure and those are rendering pure. In other words, like in Leviticus, clean, unclean, clean, unclean. These are forbidding and those are permitting. Moshe said all of them from the mouth of the Almighty. But it is written. It is like the shifts. It's like the divisions, the mishmerot that are planted. They're talking about the divisions of the priests, the Levites, and the tribes. So they're saying it's like people that are planted, that are fastened, like a well-driven nail. And they say it's done with the letter sheen. That's why there was a substitution there where it should have been masmerot with a samech. They've substituted a sheen. And so they're trying to figure out why do they substitute a sheen for a samech? And they say, well, this is to say that there are 24 books in the Bible, in the Torah, like the number of shifts that David established. 
Therefore, it is written with the shame. Remember, David said in the 24 watches. And it says so too in Chronicles, David, which is normally spelled Dalit, uh, Dalit, it starts to spell it differently. Dalit, Vav, Yod, Dalit. So uh, it says it's spelled fully as its gematria or its numerical equivalent is 24, corresponding to the 24 shifts that David established. So what's the significance? They just decided arbitrarily to quit spelling David's name Dalit Vav Dalit? Or are we supposed to read that and say, hey, there's something here to learn? And we look at the gematria, it's 24, and say, oh yeah, David instituted the divisions of 24, the 24 and the 24 and the 12. That's the 60 mighty men that surround the 12 tribes and the presence of Adonai that dwells among them. So they say, uh, the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of the wise are like goads, and masters of these collections are like driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive study is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when everything has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Right? That's the full context of that verse in Ecclesiastes. So now let's look, let's break this down, because there's two particular words in that verse. It's nata. And I know if you've been doing the prayers in Hebrew, you have heard this word before, where we'll say, Natatalanu, If you're doing the messianic candle lighting blessing, it's who has planted eternal life in us. So this driving of the nail, it's not usually translated that way. You can see it's only translated that way one time. But how often is it translated as to plant 56 times? And that's what they're saying. Here's some significance. It's not just like talking about taking the word and driving it in like a nail. It's saying when you, when you implant the word in you, you're turning into a fruitful tree. That's the significance of it. And the other significance of it is that he has fastened immortality into us, which is pretty cool. That with his word, what, what did James in the, the section we read, meekly receive the implanted, this would have been the word that he used. Let that word get not just driven into you like a hammer, let it be implanted in you. And when it's implanted in you, what the roots will go down and now it's fastened inside of you. And you want the roots to go down, not out. That's why we stay off the internet as much as possible. <laughs> because if you just skip from place to place, field to field, then a lot of times you'll, you'll put out a lot of roots this way. But if you're going to be fastened like a nail, the roots need to go down. They need to go deep. Uh, the next, again, let's go back and look at that Sheen Samic question. 
where it says the nails, the masmerot, or is it mashmerot? It's written as mashmerot, but it should have been masmerot. It's like nails that are planted. Just like this nail is planted, so too are words of Torah. And just like a planting, a sapling is fruitful and multiplies, so too do the words of the Torah become fruitful and multiply to find an explanation about them. Does that make sense now? Even though it looked a little intimidating at first, now it starts to make sense. They're given from one shepherd. And this is intimidating. Even though these are rendering impure and those are rendering pure, the book of Leviticus is intimidating. But the good news is you got lots of time to practice because there's no temple to go into right now. Uh, these are forbidding. These are permitting. Well, here's what James says about it. And James 1.21, therefore, ridding yourselves of all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Where would you find out what filthiness and wickedness was? Would you go to the newspaper? Would you go to magazines? Would you go to Vogue? Would Vogue tell you what is filthy and what isn't? Would you go to the movies to find out what's filthy and what isn't? Well, you could definitely see filthy, but it's not necessarily going to tell you what the difference is between filthy and not filthy. You go to the word and you go to the word and the word will begin to implant in you and begin to grow in you a sense of what is pure and what is impure. And therefore, you can make your decisions based on it is written, not I feel, I think I want or I saw on TV. Because if that's how you run your life, you will not know the difference between clean and unclean. And that's what James is saying. You have to, in humility, receive the, the word implanted. I can't tell you how many times in the last few years I've heard people say, well, I know what the Bible says, but I just feel like, but I just feel like, well, that's just harsh. I just feel like that's harsh. Is it? Or is it the most compassionate thing that could have ever been written to you to save your life, to rescue and to raise you up and to his kingdom. And so James is saying, you're going to have to break humility. It breaks you and it allows him to go in. If you're still stuck on, yeah, but it just seems so harsh. Or I just feel that, you know, um, that has to break before that word can go in and implant itself and begin to put the roots down. And so James says, it's able to save your souls. What is your soul? appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect, what you think you feel you want, you need. Well, it has nothing to do with it is written. In fact, it's usually leading you in the opposite direction of it is written. Your soul must become disciplined to your spirit, which functions on it is written, not I think, I feel, I want, I need. Yeshua came to save your soul, not your spirit. Our souls need saving. <laughs> and so... Baruch Hashem, Yeshua came, I'm going to save your soul. Now you need to walk in your salvation, because if you are saved, then you should no longer be walking according to, I think I feel I want, I need. That should not be dominating your life. The Ruach, the Holy Spirit should be dominating your soul, saying, it is written, therefore I want. It is written, therefore I think. It is written, therefore I need. We're going to find out just what we need on Yom Kippur, aren't we? Is it going to be a drink of water and something to eat? 
your spirit is going to say, it is written, you can make it. You can make it one day. And James says, prove yourselves doers of the word, not just hearers who deceive themselves. And that's what the soul will do. It will deceive you and it will masquerade as your spirit. And it will make you think that what, it'll make you think that what you think is the truth. A thought will run through your head and you'll run around for six months saying the Lord said, Lord didn't say that. You just thought it. Prove it against the word. If you can't prove it against the word, you might want to just be careful how you phrase it because you're speaking for him in a very specific way. So it's, it's a transformation. The spirit trains you up and dis disciplines you. It disciples you so you will no longer deceive yourself because we're the bigger, biggest deceivers in our own lives. I could have heard an amen on that. I didn't. <laughs> okay, let's look at one more word here. The sheen, the masmerot, masmerot. What is it? Well, the text... As you can see, on the, if you can read the Hebrew, if not, I've got a big red hand pointing to it so you can see the sheen. Or you can see the samech. The samech would be to your left, and the sheen hand would be to your right. Right? So the red hand to your right, mashmira, uh, that's what is actually in the text. But it's typically what you see on the left. Masmer, but the summit. And so they say when this happens, when they substitute letters, that it's not because it's an error, it's not a mistake, it's because it wants to show you additional significance. You can learn something else from it. So they substitute the sheen for the summit. The value of summit is 60, our 60 mighty men. But remember, Israel underwent a transformation in the wilderness. <clears throat> So they're coming up from the wilderness, 60 mighty men, but there's a transformation and we can see it in the wordplay. What's different about Israel coming up out of the wilderness, crossing the Jordan, than when they crossed the Nile, <laughs> coming out of Egypt? Well, here's the Hebrew letter Shin that's been substituted. If you'll notice, it's formed from three-letter vavs. And the letter Vav literally means a nail. That's a nail. What are the words like? Planted nails. It also symbolizes man because the, the place value of the Hebrew letter Vav, one, two, three, four, five, six, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav. It's number six. Mankind was created on the sixth day. So the Vav stands for. Mankind, not just nails, literally nails, but also human beings. And if, if you know the value is six and you're saying, wait a minute, that is three vows nailed together. <laughs> That's six, six, six. What are we going to do? Oh, my goodness. It's the mark of the beast in Hebrew. Hmm. You know, we were told to put the commandments around our heads and on our arms. And what do they have on those little boxes? The Hebrew letter sheen. Vav, 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 six, six, six. What's the message here? You already know the message, don't you? Well, they say these 24 watches, the priests, the Levites, uh, that are basically surround or 
not just guarding, but they are doing avodah. They're doing service. They're doing the work. Same words that attach to the garden. What they are doing is where you got the 12 tribes around here doing more general work. They are there to protect the holier spaces of the temple, the temple mount, the area directly around it. And so uh, those 24, they say, can represent the 24 books of the Tanakh. And you say there's more than 24, but they count them differently. They're putting together 1st and 2nd Samuel. They're putting together 1st and 2nd Kings. They're putting together 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And they see Ezra and Nehemiah really as the same book because it was the same era, the same process, the same thing going on. And so they say these 24 watches can represent the 24 books of the Tanakh or the Old Testament. And so we read this Torah at the end of each Shemitah year, and it's supposed to remind the people that they need to be well-planted nails. They need to be well-planted words of Adonai. Once those words are fastened into you, then you can be those wise people that speak out. And it says now, it's like you were driving nails. It's like you were planting nails into other people. You become that tree of righteousness. You start to flourish into a beautiful tree. You start to bear the fruits of righteousness. And that's the weapons. Those are the swords of the 60 mighty men. It's your skill in using the word. And if you're like me, sometimes you'll run into a situation and you're like, okay, I don't know exactly what the word says about that. Or the word might say some different things about that particular topic. How do I know how to pull together these different ideas in scripture and apply it into a practical situation? You know what? The more time you spend in it, the better you're going to be at not just picking out one verse. You're going to pull out multiple verses. And if somebody comes and asks advice, you're, you know, you're like this tidal wave of information. <laughs> you're like, no, that's too much. That's too much. Just give me one verse. You're like, can't can't because your situation is way bigger than that so let's take all the nails we have let's take all the word we have and skillfully apply the word to your situation rather than yanking a verse out of a box in the morning and expecting i mean it's almost like you're trying to get your palm read or something no become skillful in the word, and you'll learn better and better how to apply those things. And then you can kind of graduate from just being the traveling couch, because what do people on a couch do? <laughs> they sleep, they lounge, they don't get involved, <laughs> they want remote controls, they want breakfast in bed, <laughs> Cheetos, <laughs> not Cheetos. <laughs> But you don't want to be on the bed. You want to be part of those divisions of the 60 mighty warriors who are skilled in using the sword of the word and dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, knowing the difference between it is written and I think I feel I want. You want to be part of that honor guard of the king of kings. It's worth it. And so... When we can add this extra nail of the Torah on our hearts, then something wonderful happens. Because if you'll remember, the sheen, it was ba ba ba, just joined down there at the bottom. 
But again, that was a question 666. What exactly are we saying here? Well, there's another one that you can't see. What is the fourth vav is the question. Well, it's the spirit. It's Yeshua. He's the fourth man in the fire. And he is how resurrection is implanted in us. Because when Yeshua's resurrection is implanted in us, when his fire is implanted in us, at the appointed time, we will sprout up. Because we let, what did James say? It's able to save your soul. Let it be implanted. Be humble. Don't think you know everything. Open up. Let that word go in there. Let the roots go down and let it be fastened really well. Because that's what that fourth vav represents. We add the spirit of the Torah with the letter of the commandments. The 666 is the letter of the commandments. But that fourth vav that you really can't see on the one I showed you, that's the one we need. This is what comes through Yeshua. Remember, Yeshua stands up at Sukkot. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. He's pointing us back to the garden. That savav, they were like the night watchmen going round and round, drinking from the spirit. And he says, I'm going to put that spirit in you. You're going to know what time it is. Even in the night of the exile, you will know what time it is. But you let that word be planted into you. And you're going to sprout up at the appointed time. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a fourth valve on your head. <laughs> Yeshua will be your head. He will fill you with his Holy Spirit. And therefore, it'll be so much easier to meekly receive the implanted word that we strive against. So does that kind of help in terms of why did Moses need to go? He needed them to understand this. If, if you don't meekly receive this engrafted word I'm leaving with you, then you won't last long in the land where you're going. If he kicked us out before because we would not guard and we would not serve, then it makes no sense that he would put us right back in and we would drag our own rules in there and refuse to guard and refuse to serve. But through the transformation of the Holy Spirit, through the humility of the Spirit, we can meekly receive that word. He can restore us to our inheritance and we'll function. We'll function. And hopefully we'll be one of the 60 mighty ones and not the ones on the bed. <laughs> Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.